We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. Mm. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Now, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the Darkened Hour. Welcome to another episode of the Darkened Hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. And with me today are two very special guests, um, Ben and Eric, and they wish to remain anonymous for good reasons. I mean, the topic of 9-11 is basically a very taboo subject in many respects, and it still is even after 21 years. Unfortunately, it does tend to bring out a lot of emotions in people. So, but Ben and Eric are here. They are from the podcast for the New American Century. It's a funny story, actually. Um, as I was on viral media, most I think it was Twitter, I had run into them by accident, and I loved the actual podcast name. And I said, wow, a podcast named after the Project New American Century. I said, that's pretty crafty. And then when I looked at their episodes, um, I remember being very impressed, overly impressed. And that's something I'm not, um, that's something that's not visited upon me very much. I'm used to dealing with the very questionable fringe types. But these two young men won me over with their uh, learned uh, information regarding pre-intelligence into 9-11. And it just so happened that they knew who I was. And I'm very, very humbled to have them on the show and to uh, introduce them to them as Ben and Eric from Podcast for the New American Century. Guys, uh, pleasure to have you both on. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us, Adam. I got to right off the bat, um, just kind of pull the curtain back a little bit and let you know, Adam, <laughs> that I've been playing the long game, actually, for well, o almost two years now. <laughs> this whole thing was started so I could come on this show. As of today, I'm at the podium with the Marines. Mission accomplished. Ladies and gentlemen, we got them. So we got them. The sure, truly is all ours. Thank you so much for having us. Honor and a pleasure. No, seriously, we um, we started this show because there were not enough there was not enough material like yours so it, it's such a pleasure to be here thank you yeah genuinely and the show has kept been uh kept afloat uh with much of your encouragement we were uh a little bit of a we were in a bit of a slump kind of dormant until we all of a sudden got a uh dm on twitter from you encouraging us to uh continue the show and put out more episodes. Um, and I remember when I saw your first message to us, I immediately like screamed <laughs> and sent a message to Ben. And I was like, you have to look at this. 
Adam Adam DM'd us. He found us. <laughs> it's truly full circle. Even though I think on maybe the first or second episode, Eric does like shit talk you about I think the Soviet Afghan War or something like that. But other... <laughs> <laughs> I just get I think into I remember the at one point people go shit. He's gonna find that and disinvite himself from the show now. Damn. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think you were just three episodes in or four. I think episodes. so. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I remember you having a lull. And mm. my message to you was like, why did you stop? Yeah. I, I, I didn't even came out as the answer. I just said, why did you guys stop? And I was so interested in, you know, to hearing why you, maybe you had, um, you know, new life trends or something, jobs or something. I don't know. It could have been anything. But when you messaged back uh, and you basically said, well, you know, certain things got in the way, but maybe we'll have, you know, some more time in the future. And sure enough, you're now 19 episodes in since yeah. that that date in December of last year. Yeah, and so 20, boy, hopefully coming out this weekend, inshallah. In, you should, inshallah, indeed. <laughs> uh, funny thing is that now you guys seem to be on a roll, uh, so to speak, and your episodes have just gotten better and better, and I'm so impressed with you. Thank you. And, um, Thank you. You know, Yeah, absolutely, more so uh, than most people. I mean, it's unfortunate that I have to say this even 21 years later, that we don't have this type of conversation with with even just a uh a general consensus of the audience it's very rare that i get even young men such as yourself to talk about uh these issues which are barely ever talked about even with the experts uh it it i i, I believe me when i tell you that i'm very impressed with the both of you and thank i really you. thank you very thank much you. for doing it oh thank you yeah and I figured, you know, I, I, I'll start it off like that because, you know, I could talk to you about just about anything, it seems. And, you know, why don't I just start from the sim simple beginnings? Sure. Uh, why September 11, 2001 is such a depressing subject. It's such an <laughs> expansive subject. And yet you chose this subject as a, as a personal inquiry of yours, a personal interest. And I want to hear from both of you about why this subject. Eric, do you want to go first on that? And then I can kind of wrap up with how we started the show as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so Ben and I met, uh, I mean, we, we met online and we uh, we were both very interested in um, parapolitical topics. Um, and I think Ben knew a lot more than I did at that point when we were first, like, you know, talking and uh, just reading stuff, um, listening to a lot of things, honestly entertaining a bunch of... Um, silly theories even about 9-11 at the time just out of ignorance um and for me it was uh i realized how little i knew um uh, we're both uh we were both rather young when 9-11 actually happened and it was kind of encountering uh my own ignorance surrounding the topic and uh wanting to know more and do better and just slowly starting to read. And then uh, like the more you read, the more you realize that you, uh, or I guess the more you read, the more you realize that you don't really know anything at all. <laughs> and mm. so it was just kind of this uh, rabbit hole that I kept chasing. And um, I kept encountering things that would disprove things that I previously thought were true or real. And so I wanted to, you know, find out more about what uh, what I thought was correct that could be wrong and uh, vice versa. And uh, yeah, just um, really something that uh, there's uh, just, you know, like, like you said, there's so much there um, that there's so much to read that um, it just kind of seems end endless. And 
Um, it was never anything that um, I felt satiated by, by reading a single book. I just always wanted to find out more and learn more. Um, yeah. Uh, and and for me, like I had, I was always kind of a sicko for this stuff growing up um, from a very young age. Like I was that kind of like nerdy kid that was always into military stuff and like was obsessed with Tom Clancy books and Metal Gear Solid and like <laughs> was never really like a big 9-11 person, but like was always fascinated, especially with sort of like intelligence agencies and sort of more like, you know, covert operations, sort of military intelligence kind of stuff. And um, what specifically got me sucked in with the 9-11 kind of thing was um, probably like 2019, 2020, like well after Trump had been elected, like there were, I think for a lot of people in my age range, um, and Eric and I are both early 30s, um, I think after Trump got elected especially, there was definitely a lot more politicalization that happened with people in our general age bracket, you know, millennials or so. And I think for a lot of people with our kind of sicko proclivities, like we ended up drifting to this kind of parapolitical research and um, and discussion as sort of a, a way to push back against the direction that the government was heading in at the time. Sure. And um, for me, what became fascinating about 9-11, like I had always been kind of interested and in, we talked about this with you on our show. I was always interested, like growing up from like a debunking aspect, like I love those smug popular science guys, you know, doing the debunking <laughs> about the way the towers fell and stuff like that. Because for me, it always kind of felt like, you know, you're just having fun with sort of like almost like alternate history kind of fiction kind of stuff. You know, you're entertaining like these wild ideas and then you're like putting them up against scientific quote unquote rigor. But um, there was never anything to me that seemed like serious. And like for me, like that's what would have been appealing because I also at way too young of an age, like a lot of I think people in our cohort saw Oliver Stone's JFK. And that, like, that was the first thing that had gotten me pilled on like the CIA, right. and the deep <laughs> state, and, you know, all the classic kind of conspiracy sort of stuff. Yeah, um, we just all on, wanted to be Mr. X. <laughs> of course. I mean, we all want to be a fast-talking Donald Sutherland. And, you know, I always wanted something like that out of 9-11. And, like, it never see, it always seemed like it was for cranks instead. Like, right. it was always the kind of poison well of, you know, missiles being shot at the Pentagon and, and thermite taking down Building 7 and, and that kind of stuff. Mm. But um, around, like, 2019, 2020, um, and you've had Ben Howard on your show before. Um, he did a series with the uh, podcast True and On, where they get into or got into at the time all of the different it was a clearinghouse of 9-11 conspiracy content and some of it I would say is not very good um, I think some of it they would probably agree doesn't look great in hindsight um, but there is plenty of it that first hit me to like the Alex station Richard Blee the the CIA FBI angle um, which then led me to reading Disconnecting the Dots Kevin Fenton's book which we've basically just been doing a book report on for a year now more or less with some movie episodes <laughs> <laughs> But that story, because they finally introduced me to an angle where it was things that made sense to me, because like we've talked about with you on our show, like we're not we're not science guys. We don't we don't fucking love science. You know, we don't know anything about controlled demolition or any of those kinds of arguments. But when you start talking about cables and memos being sent around between intelligence agencies, like that's the one part of my brain where things start lighting up and making sense. Right. And, you know, we've started following that story. Um, I was spending a lot of time in the lead up to the uh, 20 year anniversary on History Commons, becoming just absolutely obsessed with the timeline. And what I did at first, um, just for kind of fun in one of our kind of history chats that we have, um, and probably the summer leading up to the 20th anniversary of 9-11, I would take what I would find to be interesting entries from the given day that we were on and do like, a, oh, on this day, on the 9-11 timeline, like, this is what happened, this is what happened. 
And, um, you know, by August, we were getting into some of the things that were slightly more detailed. And there were a couple that I decided instead of just, you know, copying and pasting things from history comments, oh, maybe I'll do an audio file and read something. And then that eventually turned into, well, why don't I try doing a podcast? Because I love this kind of stuff. And like, I'd been very frustrated because I found your show. I plowed through the back catalog within a week and a half. And, you know, there's just, there's not a lot of other stuff. Like, you know, Nelson Martins has his great stuff, but that's more YouTube and I'm more of a podcast guy. So it was eventually just, you know, wanting, being the change that you want to see in your podcast world. I was like, <laughs> I'm going to just do this myself. And the thing about doing a solo podcast, Adam, my hat is off to you. And um, shouts out also to Michael S. Judge. We met um, Eric and I because we're also a big fan of his podcast, Death is Just Around the Corner, which is also a, a one-man show. Um, I felt like I was going to lose my mind after doing about 10 minutes of that one time. So it quickly became a matter of finding a good co-host dynamic. Um, Eric was more than up for the job and um, we've been doing it ever since. Um, I find that it's very helpful sometimes just having another person to bounce things off of because this is such a, it's a topic that is so sprawling and has so many different elements to it. I mean, we've basically been pulling at one yarn for this first year and a half now. Um, definitely not a season, um, but we've been, we've been kind of chasing this one leader, this one angle, and we still have just a mountain of things that we keep looking at each other being like, well, maybe we'll get to that in six months. Right. Um, but it's one of those things where it's just a, it's a bottomless hole um even more so than i think things other big like comparable uh, geopolitical events like you know the jfk assassination for example where like that also has a million tendrils but with 9-11 yeah. it's just it's the complexity it's the fact that you have so many different countries involved that have histories that need to be covered you know you need to go back decades at a time sometimes um it, it's a never-ending well of content in a way um and it's more yeah. recent so it doesn't have quite the same feeling of being just a black hole um, I mean, since we've started the show, there have been some pretty dramatic, you know, revelations and, and documents that have been released around like Operation Encore, for example. So to us, I, I can't speak for Eric, but to myself, at least, um, there's also definitely kind of more of a, a feeling that this is more recent history and yeah. that the story might not quite be over yet, even though it, it feels more and more like ancient history at this point. Right. I would definitely agree with that. I would also just add on like insofar as um, motivations for making the show, uh, I have like a, um, I don't know, I feel very compelled to understand history by being able to explain it. So like if you're reading history commons, it's one thing to just have a bunch of history commons uh, entries in a timeline, but being able to take that concentrate it into a narrative that makes sense that you can tell to somebody and they can understand what's going on is something that um, really fascinates me and it helps me better understand what's going on. And I think um, relating that to just kind of studying 9-11 and uh, parapolitical um, happenings uh, and specifically geopolitics about 9-11 and pre-intelligence failures, um, I felt that I was starting to understand the world that we currently live in, which is very yes. confusing um, more because I was able to understand uh, what happened in these events. It's uh, certainly different as you um, portray it to be. Like with 9-11 especially, it's a very depressing topic. Yeah. And very uh, um, expansive in its, in its uh, nature, actually. You know, you bring up uh, uh, certain aspects of, say, foreign policy, which needs to be understood decades in the past. Right. As to why certain things happened and why certain things moved about in the ripple effects of 9-11. And that it starts to make sense. Um, you, you're much different than in the way that I present 9/11. <laughs> I, 
I think you, maybe a little bit, you could say yeah, that. Yeah, very much so. But it, this actually, I think, is a lot. I think it affects people better than in, let's say, how I go about uh, doing a my pod. My podcast is much more darker, and it's much more um, uh, stoic in its uh, in its presentation. Well, yeah, the intro music actually, really sets the tone there. Sure, but, <laughs> but, but, but certainly you bring about a much more sociable attitude that reaches far uh, more, uh, far bigger audience, a far broader audience that definitely uh, needs to be uh, touched on. And I think that's uh, another benefit of your show is that the both of you actually work so well with one another uh, in, in telling a story, which is, really hard to tell when you're laughing at the same time. Um, yeah. A coworker of mine, uh, you know, I talked to you about before we recorded, uh, she knows what I do, but she they says, I can't listen to your shows because, you know, you're, you're too depressing to listen to. And I said, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. I, I you know I can't, I'm not the, I used to be the very happy type, but, you know, learning about certain things has made me uh, very demure and very right. um, stoic in, in nature. Yeah. Um, and we walk a fine line, I think, we try to walk a fine line at least, because yeah. we try to not do the, the kind of true crime podcast sort of thing where at the end we end up kind of laughing at, you know, 3,000 people dying. Like we try not to make a joke of what's actually happening. But right. I think a lot of I think a lot of where the humor and a lot of the dynamic comes from is just a way of kind of processing how frustrating and exasperated we often are. Yeah. Um, like a lot of the story, like when you do get into the details of who did what and who didn't do what, and like all of, especially this petty bureaucratic backfighting between like the CIA and the FBI, like mm. sometimes all you can do is laugh. But I, I think the other thing kind of that I wanted to comment on there based off what you were just asking, um, I consider myself rather kind of like an early adopter as far as like the whole podcast thing went. Like I, early like late 2000s early 2010s like i was already kind of like spending way too much of my time listening to other people because it's better than being alone with your own thoughts mm. and i find that podcasts like are <laughs> a special kind of format because um you know people throw around like the phrase friendship simulator and like similar similar kinds of things like that when they when they're talking about podcasts and why they're not good but i i think in a way like you know you spend an hour hour and a half listening to like two people talking back and forth in your head you know every week there is eventually like this kind of implicit trust that almost gets built up. You know, if you're taking the time out to like, you know, focus your attention on what these people have to say, then like, obviously you're interested in what they have to say and you're, you know, you're open to what, what the message is. And I find that like, that is a way that you can reach people. Um, so that's yeah. why we try to be kind of like approachable and normal because this is such a taboo, not only kind of a taboo topic, but it's such, like I mentioned earlier, such a poison well where like, you have to like whenever I tell people in the in my day to day life that like I do something about nine eleven, which is not I try to avoid as much as I can. I always have to then immediately preface it with being like, "Well, it's not the kind of nine eleven thing you probably think it is. Like, this isn't Alex Jones. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 exactly. Not change. Like, it's right. it's more of like the history leading up to. So you know, it's easy to scare people off, and we we even though it's kind of a fine line to walk, I find that having sort of that kind of light balance to it light touch to it maybe um you know yeah. it's a way to attract people in and like not freak people out yeah um because again it's such a poison well i mean i remember even reading disconnecting the dots the uh, first time um the intro to that book is written because it was published it's published by trine day and i think the editor-in-chief at the time or someone high up at trine day like writes the intro and like at one point like it quotes a few points from like an alex jones thing and like i remember like wincing and being like oh no is this this kind of book and then like getting like a chapter and being like, oh no, it's not this kind of book. Like this is the kind of stuff that I like. 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it's all just about making it approachable and just having people not be immediately put off by what you want to say, because like, if they're willing to listen, like there's a lot we can tell them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is it, now in, in regards to talking about this subject, have you ran into many people, uh, talk about the society itself. Have, have, have you ever come across people more often than not regarding how they see 9-11 in a fringe aspect of looking at it through the lens of an Alex Jones or through a Rebecca Roy type of deal? Or have you, is it more than rare to come across somebody who is, uh, who knows who Paul Thompson is, for example? It's definitely more rare to come across somebody who knows who Paul Thompson is. I don't know anyone in my real life, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I know, I think if we're talking about encountering people in real life, um, friends, coworkers, acquaintances, uh, I think more so I've encountered people who are mostly ignorant, don't really take seriously the Alex Jones angle, but are willing to hear what I have to say as long as I'm willing to preface everything by saying I think Alex Jones is mostly like full of shit and I'm like not really willing to like talk about that and I'm more interested in talking about the history of like I think the way that I always frame it and I think we both do is we're not so much talking about conspiracy theory we are talking about foreign policy decisions that led to 9-11 happening exactly yeah and when you put it that way, it's like, yeah, you look like a big nerd, but uh, <laughs> people are way more willing in real life to hear what you have to say. If you're like, oh, no, I'm like, I'm talking about stuff that like the Carter administration did. I'm talking about um, the, uh, like the Trilateral Commission. I'm talking about all of these foreign policy issues um, that like Carter's NSA uh, uh, like helped make. Um, that led to these things um, actually happening. And people always know that like, oh, well that that like is definitely going to be based in truth and just like a very um, exhaustive analysis of uh, the history of the topic as opposed to, you know, I, uh, I'm going to obsessively talk about uh, where um, George H.W. Bush was on the morning of 9-11. <laughs> Golfing. Where, where are you comfortable story because 9-11 is like i said it's such an expansive topic and i've come across people that tell me for example like where do you start do you start on the day itself or do you start and i always felt that if we go by the demographics the age demographics of the person i'm talking to so in regards to a younger audience i would start probably recent and i would say 1979 because for me, that is where most of the 20th century players originate from, or basically uh, many incidents happening in 1979, which basically saw a rise of Islamic fundamentalism mm -hmm. and how the intelligence apparatus basically handled it yeah. or mishandled yeah. it in most respects. And I said to myself, um, you know, how would I go about interviewing Ben and Eric in this uh, podcast? <laughs> and they said, well, you know, what's good about them is that I basically could go back to a certain period, even many years prior to that. Yeah. But um, at the same time, I don't want to lose people in the audience by encompassing so many subjects. No, I mean, first of all, Metal Gear Solid Five came out years ago. Like all the kids love the Soviet <laughs> Afghan war now because they've spent way too much time playing around in it. Um, 
<laughs> I think that's I think Operation Cyclone is fair game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And plus, uh, even if you just like bring up, oh well, do you remember that uh, like awful Tom Hanks movie, Charlie Wilson's War? Uh, they'll be like, uh, oh, I think I heard one of, of that Mike movie, Nichols' right? last movies. What a bummer. Um, yeah, I know, right? I know. Uh, yeah, but like, if you bring that up, then people will be like, oh, right, that's something that happened. Sure, sure. okay, yeah. They don't always connect it to like this, uh, like led to nine eleven happening because. The movie um, does a good job of whitewashing most of the actual events. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for reminding me to do an episode. Is there, a, is there a starting point for you when you talk to people who are generally ignorant about 9-11? Is there a certain point that you, you start from? Uh, I would I would start from January of 2000 for the I, most part. Yeah, not. I would say like the El Hazmi Almodar story, but yeah. even more high level than the El Hazmi Almodar story. Like when I am on first dates, having to like very <laughs> self consciously explain like what it is I like to do. Um, I always start with the Saudi involvement. Um, yeah. Like when people say like I don't say like oh I'm a 9/11 truther. Like I say like my interest is in the the Saudi the 20 pages in the Saudi involvement. Yeah. And, um, you know, that is continually in the news. Like as soon as you tell them that president Brandon's been, you know, declassifying like this FBI information over the last you know year. Or so like drip feeding the story out about operation encore, mm -hmm. like people quickly start taking you seriously because mm -hmm. like you, they can't really argue with that. But, um, I mean, on top of that, I would say that the official story in general is what we tend to embrace instead of kind of push away. Um, like we tend to focus everything around what was in the 9-11 commission, you know, what's in the other big reports like the, the DOJ IG report and the Senate commission. Hmm. So for us, like I would say that like, it's all following the timelines of, you know, the terrorists themselves, like in, like Eric said, from January 2000 or so, like using that as a good starting point. And then from there, like every single player in the story has like another thread that you can then follow backwards because right. you know, if you want to talk about Al Qaeda, well, then you have what 20 40 years of afghan of afghanistan history to, to tease back and then saudi history at least back to the 1930s oh and then you know you have to fold in egypt from what the 40s onwards if you know if you're going to cover the muslim brotherhood effectively right. so it, it's like everywhere that you want to look like there's there's another there's another place to start and then it's just a matter of how far back you want to go on that timeline yeah but it's i think like kind of leading to 9 11. Yeah, but I think for me, uh, what I've discovered in talking to people that really just don't know much, if you just kind of say like, okay, well, here's Al-Qaeda, they get that. Um, Al-Qaeda was, you know, or, or uh, there were Al-Qaeda operatives that were meeting to plan terrorism or terrorist attacks in 2000. When they came to the United States, the CIA found out about it and they made moves to stop the FBI from finding out about it. That's a great starting point. And most people, um, if they're interested, will want to know more um, about the back history. But if you're trying to convince somebody that they should, you know, learn more about pre-intelligence failures on 9-11, um, I don't think that a lot of the, like, um, people who don't know much about it need much more back history. And the more that you give in back history, um, it can kind of just you know, cause confusion or people just get overloaded with information. Um, and that's why I typically, if I'm ever like introducing the topic or trying to like discuss why I'm interested in uh, what's going on or why I think the way that I do about it, I start uh, with basically the Malaysia summit and then mm -hmm. uh, Nawaf Al-Hazmi and Khalid Al-Midar coming to San Diego. The other thing that I do try to hammer home very early with people too, is like to be out of the gate unequivocal that Al-Qaeda did 9-11. 
Um, you know, like Bush right. did 9-11 and stuff like that is like a good catchphrase and a good way to like, you know, get people on the right on the right track, at least. But like, you know, there's such a clear history and such an important history of, you know, Al Qaeda and Islamic fundamentalism that, you know, right. goes through. I mean, we did a whole great interview, Darren Harvey and I, about this, um, you know, the whole trail from 93 World Trade Center bombing to Bojinka to Landmarks to Millennium, um, to, right up until 9-11, um, the East Africa embassy bombings, the coal bombing. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you have all of this DNA, like, and all of this sort of structure that 9-11 is like built on top of. Right. And like you, you have talked about in so many videos and in so many podcasts, Adam, you know, if you're not willing to even start from that frame, then like the story that you're left with is one that is, is boring and I would probably never be wasting my time talking about otherwise. Yeah. Um, but like in order to have all of this context to, to justify why Al-Qaeda was doing what it was doing in the first place, um, you know, that's at least a year's worth of talking so far. And then we haven't even really gotten too deep into the Bush administration yet. <laughs> right. Right. And this is the reason why with 9-11, it's such a, a magnificent topic where you can basically branch out and have many tentacles in regards to foreign policy, the intelligence apparatuses, uh, Middle East affairs, U.S. Uh, a relationship with Israel and Saudi Arabia. These all come into play mm -hmm. regarding not just with 9-11, but all the prior incidents that you just named. Um, and why they're allowed to do this. And, you know, I've, I, when people ask me, um, you know, what's the purpose of these radical fundamentalists? You know, it, do you really believe that they hate us for our freedoms? I say, no, in fact, mm -hmm. quite the opposite. Yep. And I always use the example of Ramza Youssef. And I say, well, all you have to do is just listen to him because he basically was allowed to speak at his sentencing for his part in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, where he gave an hour uh, statement to, I think it was Judge Nicholson or presided over the, uh, um, I'm not, I'm, Judge Nicholson or somebody else. I know he's a long-term judge. It's been around. He prosecuted a lot of the uh, La Cosa Nostra uh, members in the 80s mm. and 70s. Anyway, he allowed Ramsey Yusuf to read the statement and went for an hour. And at no point within that whole hour did he blame anything on Christians and Jews religiously. Right. It was mostly to do about American foreign policy and the history of American interventionalism that goes back even decades. It's like they're telling you why they're doing it. And they have no, they, they're not shy about showing, you know, like not telling you why they're doing this because you have many martyrdom videos that are basically mm -hmm. made, even from 9 11 uh, perpetrators, you yeah. know, about talking about U.S. foreign Every single one they caught, they didn't have to torture. Most of them were happy to, to sing like birds as soon as they were arrested. Yeah, yeah they very much talking. so. Ramsey Yusuf right. was basically very gregarious. Yeah. He was, you know, basically willing to. And that was the same with um, Abdul Hakim Arad when he was first. I mean, he was beaten up, beaten up a little bit. But afterwards, he basically, you know, was given a hamburger and he talked about the whole Pajinka plot. Yep. But they're, they're not shy about telling you why they're doing this in the first place. And it has, to, it has nothing to do with women wearing short skirts. Or you know, driving cars, uh, yeah. United States yeah. nature, everything to do with foreign policy. Right. And right. I figure that's where we should start. Is that mm -hmm. we should start from there. And um, so you know, I'll I'll basically start off by asking you that um, regarding the mid history of Al Qaeda, mm -hmm. uh, what we saw in the build up to Al Qaeda was basically that Al Qaeda came out of the Al Masada camp, which was an Arab camp based in Afghanistan. And bin Laden was allowed to do this because he got uh, permission from an Afghan warlord during the Afghan-Soviet invasion mm -hmm. uh, to build it. Because Arabs made up only about less than 10% of the fighting force. And they were only, you know, they were, the Afghans didn't like them. 
and only considered using them because they were good enough to die in a battle that they needed to win. And so the Arabs themselves did not have a, a training camp. The Afghans allowed certain Arabs, like Juladin Haqqani or Abdul Rasul Sayyaf, allowed Arabs to basically train with them. But there was no Arab camp until bin Laden got the permission from Abdul Rasul Sayyaf to build an Arab camp, which was called Al-Masaba. And it was nicknamed from the English, the Lion's Den. And then from here, the core components of Al-Qaeda were built. And not to mention that, you know, in James Corbett, you know, three-part series of Al-Qaeda and history thereof, he does give, does give a great job of, you know, maybe that some of the funding from CIA's Operation Cyclone had trickled-down effect into bin Laden. But he does mention, care to mention that Dr. Ahmed al-Zahiri, who is basically from another Egyptian radical sect, Egyptian Islamic Jihad, Rips. basically came over to Afghanistan when they were all arrested from the Sadat assassination. Right. And then they intertwined with the Arabs in these camps and basically started growing. And so a lot of the members of the Maktab al-Kidamat, which was also built by bin Laden with the help of Abdul Azam and Abdul Anas, that core structure that was built in Pakistan started building multiple buildings. And then we started seeing the connection into the United States when they... Uh, built the Al-Qaeda Refugee Center in Brooklyn, New York, which was an extension of the Maktab al kinamed which then we saw in Arizona, and then later Detroit, and then, you know, certain Southwest United States. And so we started seeing a, a, almost like the slow growth of this Arab fundamentalist set that was probably fermented under the CIA's and the Pakistan ISI and the mm -hmm. British MI6 with the, so much billions of dollars going into it. Yeah. They don't know where this money is going. Exactly. And so there was a trickle-down effect, I believe, which that's built. And then when the war was over, all these fundamentalists, still fresh, you know, battle fresh, they go back to their home countries, Philippines, Indonesia, Great Britain, mm -hmm. the United States, Afghanistan, Iraq, wherever. However, mm -hmm. what happens is the monster is already created. And now it's creating all these different sects that's al-Qaeda affiliated, like Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines. Yeah. Or Jemaah Islamia in Indonesia. And it feels like we're seeing and, the same playbook now in, in Ukraine. Exactly but, right. Yeah. So yeah. now we started seeing an Al-Qaeda nexus in the United States. Mm -hmm. And from here, we see certain events in history, such as 1993 World Trade Center bombing, even though that was not Al-Qaeda connected, because they were still just being formulated in Sudan at the time. Right. right. But we see these radical fundamentalists from Afghanistan connected to 1993 and the FBI after they arrest these people basically say well there is no nexus there is no uh you know bigger growth to it and my question to you Ben and Eric is that boy were they wrong <laughs> yeah you can say that <laughs> so what have you learned from 1993 world uh, bombing onward regarding Arab fundamentalism and why it was allowed to grow inside the United States so I think for me, what I immediately think back to is um, not a dissimilar um, method of funding, method of sponsoring, method of kind of collecting extremist militia groups in Iran-Contra. Um, and I mean, I guess I couldn't say if it's, you know... Um, how much it was, you know, purposefully orchestrated to be that way. But it does seem like in Iran-Contra, I, I think we can pretty definitively say that Bill Casey was purposefully 
sponsoring militia groups mm. for the purposes of creating a network of extremist militias that were going to be at the ready. And um, I think in her most recent book, uh, Whitney Webb, um, I, I think that maybe she doesn't really drive home that the express purpose was um, creating a purpose, um, or uh, rather specifically right-wing militias that were going to overthrow any democratically elected socialist government, particularly in the American South um uh, or uh the uh, uh south america i mean um but uh it it does look a lot like um the formation of uh um fundamentalist groups um that were uh militarized and starting to um uh organize and um uh, uh become cohesive um through the 93 world trade center bombing so what i see from 93 is um certainly if not just a uh complete um lack of history um then perhaps something like a purposeful um uh ignorance i don't know what you want to call it but it does seem like how did they not look at what happened through iran contra mm. and say certainly the same thing is happening here and that might blow up in our faces um i don't know uh, if that made a lot of sense or if that's just my own wild ramblings but <laughs> no and i think that makes a lot of sense i mean ben we we've seen it through history before yeah that the cia is willing to work with these uh, either ultra orthodox groups like al qaeda mm. or ultra nationalist groups that we see in previous history regarding well i mean go back to yeah, well, go, you can go even further back than that, Adam. I mean, look at post-World War II. I mean, there wasn't even a CIA at that point. It was the OSS. Mm. But you had folks like Alan Dulles and company. I mean, people always think of Operation Paperclip, you know, as being 800 Nazi scientists, you know, being whisked over to America when in reality, you know, you have your Otto Skorzenys and your, um, your Klaus Barbies and, like, some really heavy hitters in, like, you know, Nazi war machine, Nazi intelligence apparatus and all of that just getting absorbed right as soon as the war was over and you know they couldn't immediately turn it on on the soviets so instead what you had to have was these series of proxy wars um right. you know that would go all throughout the uh all throughout the, you know the shout out to michael s judge again but the whole idea that world war three already happened and it was between 1945 and 1991 and fought in every country besides the united states and russia <laughs> um which i guess puts us now in world war four technically um i Something you can like argue that. about the, the numbering on that <laughs> it's hard to keep track I mean, as far as uh, to center this back though to the sort of Islamic fundamentalist like part of it, um, you know, I would, I, I think the other part of this worth talking about too is that all of this seemingly starts in the '90s because in the what was it the early '90s is when the first um, you know American military bases end up in Saudi Arabia as part of um, Desert Storm, right? Yeah, that's right. And I mean, there is a. Um, I don't want to start talking anything or give any kind of implication here that I think that Al Qaeda is necessarily right about anything, but um, <laughs> there is one clip, and I believe we've played it on our show too, Eric, of um, of famed CIA lunatic Michael Scheuer um, giving his list of reasons. I think it was to Pat Leahy um, of all people, um, giving his list of reasons why um, he thinks that Al Qaeda, you know, wants to attack America and has such a problem with America. Right. And, you know, I, I remember I was wanting to put that in because we thought it made him sound crazy at the time. But the more you think about it, like, A, how everything on his list is correct. Um, for example, I believe his number one was our support of tyranny, um, the American supports, um, American support rather for tyranny throughout the, uh, the Muslim world. Um, there was our presence, like our military presence in the Holy Land. 
Um, our support for Israel was one of them. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on some of the other ones here. I mean, we can get you the, uh, the clip afterwards for context. But, you know, I remember getting to a point where, like, when you actually look at, like, the material reasons behind these attacks, because as you mentioned earlier, it's not because, you know, my mother can drive a car or because women don't have to wear hijabs here. Um, but it is these things that, you know, at the end of the day, like we tend to be in full agreement on um, PNAC and Al Qaeda in, in one way or another. Like, I don't think Eric and I, I think Eric and I agree that there should not be troops in Saudi Arabia. I, I don't think there should be troops anywhere in the Middle East or Africa for that matter. Right. Um, Israel, like, again, stay tuned. That's going to be its whole, that's a very long story. But I think in general, like, like much like Michael Shore, if I could cut the Israelis off tomorrow and not give them another dime from our, from our tax dollars, I'd be more than happy to do that. Uh, um, and it, when, when you kind of realize where they're coming from then like a lot of this seems to then like make a lot more sense i would say Eric, do you, do you would you agree with that or am i now like no 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 I, 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 have i booked myself a trip to guantanamo now <laughs> no i definitely agree that's kind of the wild thing especially when you talk about uh the stuff that michael scheuer has said is how much you realize that he's correct he just has absolutely insane inferences from that knowledge and no um, manners yeah no, good lord no sure. manners um but uh, no, I, I mean, I think you're absolutely correct. So in other words, it wouldn't be too conspiratorial to basically say that in order to replace an old enemy such as the Soviets with their defeat in, in, 19, uh, uh, in, in 1990, yeah. uh, there they, they would, would need to be a new enemy. And this new enemy conveniently is an ally that was created and partly created by the intelligence apparatuses, which is now coming back to haunt them because of their own um, uh, malfeasance regarding how the United States perceives the world as some large chess piece and picking out selective countries as being allies and the most of the board is the enemy. Right. And most of the enemy is Arab countries. Mm -hmm. So I'm pretty sure this is just the, the log line for Adam Curtis's The Power of Nightmares. Uh, but yes, go and that's a great, that's a great uh, point to bring up because that's a great uh, series. But no, shouts out. He's got a new one out now that I haven't seen yet. But yeah, Power of Nightmares, if anyone hasn't seen it, is Fantastic. a very good watch. Um, and, but, but I didn't mean to cut now, you off, we, now we have a replacement enemy during the whole 1990s. Yeah. And this is how we could basically now talk about the intelligence apparatuses, yeah. mainly CIA, NSA, who are keeping very close quarters with these, you know, uh, entities that are now residing inside the United States. And so when Al-Qaeda was being uh, harbored in, by the Sudanese government under um, Omar al-Bashir, the president, and Hassan al-Tarabi, who's the leader of the National Islamic Front, the group Al-Qaeda, which was basically not a terrorist group at, to this point, uh, basically is now growing at this point, allowed to grow in a country that is basically harboring these people. And at the same time, the NSA at around this point started listening to the satellite phones of Osama bin Laden, mm -hmm. certain Al-Qaeda uh, leadership like Mohammed Atef, military commander, Dr. Ahmed Oswiri, the second in command. And throughout the 1990s, the CIA and the NSA kept close contact with Al-Qaeda, monitoring them at this point. And I, I mentioned this before, how the CIA would have these principles meetings with the Clinton administration about how to handle the issue of bin Laden. And there were some instances where they said, and this is coming from a CIA legendary operative named Billy Waugh, who was, who was actually part of the uh, capture of Carlos the Jackal, also in North Africa. 
Hell yeah. That <laughs> Billy Wall said, I was jogging past Bin Laden. And I could basically kill him with a rock. And basically, <laughs> they could just end this whole charade of, like, here's a guy that basically could pose as a threat. He's building training camps. And the Clinton administration kept saying no. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the group gets bigger and bigger. 1996 comes along, 1998, 96, the first fatwa, yep. which is against the um, the military station in Mecca, Medina, mm-hmm. 1998. Now it expands to civilians. Mm-hmm. And so from here, Ben and Eric, we now see Al-Qaeda, which has now moved into Afghanistan, now is now is a regional threat, now an international threat, uh, but completely ignored by the CIA, NSA, even though they're keeping close tabs with them, collecting so much metadata up to this point. Um, why not end, end just kill bin Laden? Why not just end the threat, but instead basically allow for this guy and his group to basically expand and become into a bigger threat, which basically uh, now uh, up to this point, we finally see how much of a threat he is with the bombing of the East Africa embassies in Tanzania and Kenya. And so even with that, what does the Clinton administration do? Well, we're not just going to kill bin Laden. We'll just send a missile over to Afghanistan and Sudan and bomb a pharmaceutical factory, which is the Al Shilta, I think, a pharmaceutical factory and a training camp when nobody was there. Mm-hmm. And so why not kill Can people? I interrupt you, Adam, really, really yeah. quick? Not only did did they launch the um, those the, do that cruise missile strike on Afghanistan and Sudan, um, I believe one of those cruise missiles at least also landed accidentally in Pakistan, um, which the Pakistanis were actually okay with because if I recall correctly, I was just reading this like a few months ago, they were actually able to reverse engineer the, um, the cruise missiles that accidentally landed into their country, and that's how they wound up with ballistic missiles for the first time. Yeah, so that's something right. But happy accidents, I suppose. <laughs> it's like the, the Viet Cong with the Colt 911. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, you know, like I... I had not known about the Pakistan ballistic missile. Yeah, they apparently reverse engineered cruise missiles um, as a result of that attack. Ah, good. Uh, That's good to know. I had not not known it. But we we now have like this massive intelligence ring that is basically operating close by to bin Laden and Al Qaeda. And why not just basically eliminate the threat here? Why do you think that the Clinton administration basically denied every aspect of assassinating this guy when the, the warnings were coming in? That hey, there's a guy in in uh, Af- in Sudan who's building training camps who could be a threat, and this is coming from the CIA. Yeah. Why is it that they don't kill him? I mean, I think you have to look at the history of what happened in that they did not kill them, and uh, ask uh, going back to JFK and Mr. X, Cui uh, Bono, um, who was benefiting from the. Uh, um, the permission to allow them to continue to operate, uh, which undoubtedly is, that's what happened. Um, and in that, I mean, I think you, there is a bit of speculation that has to take place, but, uh, then you start to get into a little bit of what James Corbett and Sybil Edmonds reported on in, um, uh, uh, in Gladio B, um, Mm -hmm. uh, issues of, uh, Al-Qaeda and um, Pakistan ISI and the CIA and the, F, uh, the NSA and the FBI 
um, in drug smuggling and nuclear arms smuggling. Um, mm-hmm. You get into Randy Glass. You get into Operation Diamondback. Um, and I, I think that is what uh, you know makes the most sense. Is you have to have this continuation of these um, extremist militias that are going to be loyal to you um, to a degree. I mean, they're going to do what you want to do in order to obtain your geopolitical goals. And uh, they are going to be continued to be funded by drugs the way that they always have been. Mm -hmm. It's just the same playbook pressed onto the Middle East in the 90s. Plus, the Clinton administration was happy having those boys fight over in, you know, Kosovo and Chechnya. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're still useful to them. Right, because at the we were still fighting against Russia because that's yeah. how our economy survives. <laughs> no, true enough, and that's it's almost all our economy is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Horrifying as it is, they're still considered a useful uh, tool because, as you say, we are fighting the communists in uh, Chechnya, um, and then we did see a backlash from it because um, I believe um, Slobodan and Milosevic began liquidating the Muslim population. There was this outcry, mm-hmm. uh, why didn't the United States basically stop it? And that also fermented to a lot of hatred toward the West because we didn't basically stop the genocides that were happening in the Balkans um, on top of this. Because Bin Laden basically does say in future interviews that that was one of the reasons why they hated the United States uh, upon you know us stationed in Mecca Medina, as you said, Ben, earlier was that um, the, the slaughter of the Muslim populations right. by Milosevic's yeah. army was another reason why. And that in itself, and you wonder, you know, people are wondering, well, how does that fit into 9-11? Because we also have a connection between the 9-11 hijackers in the Balkans at the same time, according yep. to the intelligence apparatus with Khalid al-Midar and Nawab al-Hazman, yep. who basically are uh, um, engaging in the fight against the Soviets as well. 96 is a huge key period because uh, we see the formation of Alex Station, which was the yeah. CIA virtual station tracking Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. Able Danger, which mm-hmm. was the Defense Intelligence Agency's operation involving uh, terrorist uh, cells operating inside the United States. Mm-hmm. And at this point, we see the, uh, the CIA be- uh, come across, uh, the NSA come across uh, phone calls from Bin Laden to a house in Yemen. That's yep. right. The switchboard. And basically it was warranted enough to where like this phone, this phone number was quite important. It was red flagged by the NSA and they wanted to know who was in this house. And it basically it was owned by a person named Ahmed Al-Hada, mm-hmm. who was an associate of Bin Laden from the Soviet Afghan war. Right, right. And so the NSA builds a listing station. They start monitoring the phone calls out of this house. Khalid Al-Madar's uh, father-in-law too, I believe, right? That's correct. That's right. Married That's right. to the daughter of Hodo Al-Hada. Yeah, yep, yep. And so now you have the CIA, the NSA, listening, monitoring these people coming in inside the house and outside the house, wondering who these people are, tracking these people. Five years prior to the 9-11 mm-hmm. attacks themselves, and you have an enormous awash of information coming from it. Even Michael Scheuer basically says that the NSA was the premier agency in collecting data intelligence. So Ben and Eric, I, w- I would ask you here, how important was this Al-Qaeda Yemen Hub Center, which is basically what it was nicknamed, the Al-Qaeda Yemen Hub Center, in regards to the intelligence apparatus monitoring these phone calls, monitoring these people's whereabouts, and you have this awash of information five years prior to the attacks. What, would you consider this the most important epic before 
Um, maybe. I mean, I don't think that that would be um, too extreme to say that it is the most important. Um, for me, the uh, the thing about the Yemen hub is this is where you get into some of the nitty gritty where you can really start to make arguments about um, the what to believe in the he said, she said um, sort of stuff, particularly yes. when you get into the Michael Scheuer arguments that the NSA had all yep. of this, you know, he calls, as you said, the NSA, this premier intelligence agency, and um, they were the ones that were preventing the CIA from being able to hear the full conversation. I believe mm -hmm. like CIA was able to get one half of the conversation. NSA had both CIA, you know, I, you know, what didn't they Michael Scheuer had to have a listening post built on Madagascar, uh, Madagascar so they could intercept the right, calls yeah. and they could only get half the calls and right. still had to go back. So to the you CIA, have the NSA all this And this is considered an intelligence failure. This is considered right. a failure of intelligence for this information to not be passed along. That because the existence of this intelligence failure versus the argument for the entire basis of the wall argument, right? Yes. Um, uh, this is what bolsters the idea that, uh, well, like, you know, we have this issue of interagency um, information sharing. And um, this, I think, is kind of the nexus to where, for me, the argument really starts to break down because George Tenet is the fucking DCI, which before 2005 means that he ran the NSA, too. He <laughs> wasn't just the head of the CIA. He ran the NSA, too. Barbara McNamara should have been snapped in line by George Tenet if there was an issue with getting information and there was a legitimate concern over terrorism being um, planned and actually being able to be carried out, which didn't just mm. happen in 98, didn't just happen in 93, continued in 2001. How the fuck did George Tenet not just tell the NSA to share the other half of the phone conversation? Go back and listen to his fucking 1997 confirmation hearings. David Boren is on the microphone talking about how important of a job the DCI is and how you need somebody like George Tennant because he is able to take responsibility and he is able to be the person who can answer all of the phone calls, who can actually rein all of the intelligence agencies in because he doesn't just run the CIA. He answers to the president. He runs the fucking CIA. He runs the NSA. He runs everything. He runs the FBI. That was the role of DCI. That was the purpose of the fucking position that George Tenet had. So this idea that Michael Scheuer is just going to trot out this fucking, oh, well, Barbara McNamara just told me to fuck she off. She wouldn't give me the other half of the calls. Suck my dick, Michael Scheuer. Your boss could have told her to fucking tell you what was going on. That's why he was appointed by the president. Anyway. <laughs> well, there you go. No. Well, but... they fired him instead. I mean, well, yeah, they didn't I fire did, him. Yeah. They they offered him an early retirement that he did not take, um, and chose to pout in the CIA library instead. But yeah, we should get him on the show sometime, man. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's funny. Let me ask you, Bo. Why, why do you think there was such a uh, a huge wall between the NSA and CIA, even though, uh, according to Scheuer, that they did have a, a connection inside the NSA's operations center regarding Yemen. Uh, why why was there such a, uh, a, a hesitation in sharing information? I mean, my personal opinion is that it allows plausible deniability for both agencies. Um, you can conduct mm. covert affairs that are technically illegal by U.S. law, and if there's this legal precedent saying that you can't share information between the two agencies for whatever reason, then you can conduct affairs and make sure that no one really, quote-unquote, finds out. I think these people are also insane. 
like I think by and large, this is an industry or a profession that self-selects just absolute paranoid yeah. but sociopaths. Right. And like all the, the the petty bureaucratic infighting that we've we joke about like every week, like the the quote unquote screaming matches that aren't really screaming matches because they actually took place after the meetings that were supposed to be containing right, these screaming matches. Right, right, right. Like these are all people that are just deeply weird and unpleasant and not sociable and like just like it's not surprising like i i've not i haven't heard a lot of barbara mcnamara i don't know if there's even like a lot of public stuff like with her but like just seeing michael Scheuer's whole deal like it's not surprising to me that like these kinds of things happen like it's it's not just necessarily that it's incompetence but it's more of just that like this these are how these people act and like these are these people are all sickos and they're all freaks and right like, if they weren't they wouldn't get the job yeah exactly <laughs> it's sure. kind of like cable news anchors in that way so we, we do have, so there seems to be a moral issue, a psychological issue, as well as an, inadmiss, an inadmissible uh, refusal to share information where you happen to think it was, you know, this could give you cover for plausible deniability if anything were to happen in the future. Well, it just so happens in two years' time, we have the embassy bombings, <laughs> yep. uh, which, by the way, could have been, you know, Properly pre prevented had. Oh, let's talk about the coal bombing. I mean, not to get too far ahead there, but I mean, sure. like, well, I mean, no one just... has ever, no one has ever asked the NSA, "Hey, what's up with the coal bombing? Like, mm, why didn't you know right. about that? Like, why didn't that get stopped?" I mean, that's been one of the most unbelievable things that we've been covering, like, over the the last few kind of episodes in the Cell Hasmi Almadar arc. It's like I don't understand the excuse here as to like how the NSA can justify that like they completely fucked it up on the on the coal bombing. Right. And going back to your point about the um, East Africa embassy bombings of 1998, yeah, there were multiple opportunities to prevent that. In fact, James Risen in his book State of War talks about how uh, there was a CIA source that um, uh, told him, so I guess take that with whatever grain of salt you want to, that um, there were moves in May of 1998, so about three months prior to the embassy bombings, um, uh, taken by Tenet to arrange a deal with Saudi Arabia in which Saudi Arabia would essentially extradite bin Laden. Mm. Um, essentially, the, their deal was that they would deal with the Taliban and they would extradite bin Laden to Saudi Arabia. Mm. Um, and it would happen with, uh, you know, I'm more so the moral support of the CIA and the U.S. government. Um, but the, the goal here was to make sure that it happened and didn't upset any... Um, uh, Islamic countries because there was an issue of um, particularly, I believe, Saudi Arabia not wanting um, a Muslim to be extradited to the United States. Uh, and so there's the story that George Tenet um, struck a deal behind closed doors with Saudi Arabia. Uh, Saudi Arabia agreed that they would take care of bin Laden if the CIA would back down and the Clinton administration would also back down. And so George Tenet goes back to the CIA and he writes a memo to the Clinton administration and tells the White House that they are going to slow roll the pursuit of bin Laden. At this mm -hmm. point, he tells Scheuer to go to the basement. Um, <laughs> and then three months later, the uh, East Africa embassy bombings take place. And there's a story that Ryzen publishes in which Tenet goes to uh, uh, to Scheuer and says, we were wrong, I, I, we were wrong. Um, uh, we should have been pursuing bin Laden. And Scheuer goes, uh, with all due respect, sir, 
you were wrong. I was right. <laughs> um, but not only if you want to like talk about the CIA, you can talk about Mercy International and the FBI's investigation of Mercy International in East Africa prior to the embassy bombings, of which, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, Mercy International was a charity front that the CIA and Saudi Arabia used to funnel money to Mujahideen in the Soviet-Afghan war. Um, those hey, Eric, funds... what, bank, what bank did a lot of that money laundering? I do believe the Riggs Bank did nice. a lot of that laundering, um, which is uh, fun for everybody. Um, but uh, Mercy International was this front that had a bunch of uh, United States bases. Predominantly, I believe uh, their main United States base was in Detroit, um, Detroit metro area, probably yep. Dearborn, if I had to guess. Um, Sounds right. Which is the home to, I think, the second largest mosque in North America, Dearborn. The big Muslim community there. I know yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, they had um, contacts, Mercy International did, all throughout East Africa, um, including they also had contacts in, um, I think, Kosovo. Um, they also had, obviously, contacts in Afghanistan. If you go back, you can read about how um, Ramzi Youssef's uncle that was not Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's brother, was actually a senior executive in Mercy International. Um, and when uh, Ramzi Youssef went to Afghanistan uh, while he was still a student in Wales, um, which is where he, he didn't really take place in much of the fighting because he was there at the very tail end of the Soviet-Afghan war. Um, but he did receive training there. It's um, generally thought that he possibly learned how to make bombs while he was there. Uh, he, um, and anyway, Mercy International uh, was being investigated by the FBI for ties to terrorism, and the CIA was blocking the FBI's investigation all the way up to August of 1998, at which point then the CIA was like, oh, shit, um, and kind of backed down off of their blockading of the FBI and allowed the FBI to come in and sort of break up all of these terrorism groups, but none of it really got back around to placing any blame on the CIA. We talk about motivation for these attacks, and they're all based on foreign policy guidelines of the United States. Um, now, for the right around the same period, we start hearing about where the formation of this new operation was to take place. Uh, and this was called the Plains Operation. And the idea initially uh, seems to have come from a previous operation that was uh, foiled, and that was just years prior to the embassy bombings attack, which is Bojinka, yeah. and commonly known as Bojinka, in which was crafted by, uh, at the time, Ramzi Youssef, the co-conspirator of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, and his uncle, uh, Youssef Eric, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who basically was both um, from Baluchistan, not part of Al-Qaeda at this point, mm -hmm. um, and basically seemed to be rogue agents of fundamentalists worldwide that had their tentacles in Pakistan, in Indonesia, Philippines, um, Afghanistan. So the idea of using a plane as a weapon came from right around this period. Right. And if we're to believe the open reports, the public record, it is believed to be initiated by Abdul Hakim Arad, who is an associate of Ramzi Youssef's from Afghanistan, who was helping to build these uh, Timex watches bombs in a, in, a par, in a hotel in the Philippines, um, and I forgot the name of the hotel, um, 
ah, that kills me. I hate when I forget certain things. <laughs> was that in some hotel in the Philippines where they were building these was very it the ambassador hotel? Is that no? That, just that pulling on my ass. Never mind. Then. Ah, I, ah. Can't, I can't remember. It. But um, they were building these Timex watches, in which the idea was to have all these Timex watches bombs underneath the plane seats where there was next yes. to the fuel the fuel tanks, mm-hmm. and then to have one plane. Uh, which was to be hijacked manually. And it was Abdul Hakim Iraq because he was a pilot and he got his training inside the United States. Uh, and he would crash it into, manually crash the plane into CIA Langley headquarters. Mm-hmm. And based. so Extremely this based. idea of using the planes as weapons uh, basically was right around this period here. But the plane foiled for some you know reason that they were mixing chemicals in the sink and you know, you had this black smoke coming out of the windows and the doors. Yeah, and yeah, basically, yeah, yeah. unbelievably, you know, they escape out of the hotel room. And Ramzi Yusuf tells Abdul Hakim Rod, hey, go back, get the laptop. The planes were on there. And remarkably, with all the police and firemen there, he goes back. And they see this guy running up the stairs. And they all turn around. And he sees them. <laughs> and he starts running the other way. <laughs> he gets caught. It's just like something Ringling Brothers Circus. Right? I know. Well, yeah, this is yeah, also yeah. around the time too that Ramsey Youssef, in in doing a little bit of his own prep work, ends up blowing up that airline or taking off out of out of Cebu yeah, City in the, the Philippines. That was part too. of the right. plot. That was that's that's right. Right. It was a test plot. That, that was, was a Japanese, test run, right? Uh, Japanese airline four thirty four, I think, was in. I think that was it because it was yeah, a flight. Didn't fr- punch big enough of a hole. Yeah. And they killed that, and that one poor bastard on the plane. But then, yeah, that's it wasn't right. enough to take the whole thing down. Yeah, mm-hmm. Ikigami was the the guy that was killed. Of yeah, that's right. That's right. It's Unbelievably, story. you know, it was a flight also... to Tokyo, correct? Yes, that's correct. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's debated, but like I've heard that the story was that like part of his body that got blown off wound up like keeping the the cabin pressurized enough that they were able yes, to land. It, it, damn, that's more that. detail. Incredible. Jesus. Um, oh, I mean, but yes, but the, the idea was to the, the idea worked that they, you know they could blow up these planes, and Hakim Arad under intense pressure for weeks on end uh, basically spills the guts about but Jacob plot hmm. Rodolfo Mendoza collects the information gives it to the FBI and what do you think the FBI does with it well, according <laughs> to Rodolfo Mendoza nothing Not yeah, much, no, no stricter security measures at airports so Eric and Ben this idea of using planes as weapons originating out of a Jacob plot headed by Carly Sheikh Mohammed Ramsey Yusuf all this was known to the intelligence apparatus in 1996. Mm-hmm. <laughs> ben, Eric, mm-hmm. what am I missing here? Why? Not only that, they were they were going to shoot uh, the Pope in the Philippines too. That's uh, right. That was part yeah, of it. Right. They were they were going to get John Paul II in the Philippines. And also, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this, and I want to hear your thoughts. Yeah. A Murad uh, basically said that there was a hidden part to that plot that was not known, and that was that there were tens there were uh, uh, affiliates inside the United States waiting for a word to hijack 10 planes mm-hmm. and to crash them all over intercontinental the United States. And that's when Rodolfo Mendoza was appalled and sent the reports to the FBI. And basically, they did nothing. Right. So, Ben Eric, I mean, what the heck? Why didn't the United States intelligence apparatus basically do something with this information? I don't know. Somebody should have told Condoleezza Rice. My God. <laughs> she had no idea that this was coming. Can you believe it? Yes. Can you believe incredible, incredible stuff? Um, I mean, either it's I don't know, Ben. I guess I'll, I'll let Ben go first. I, I feel like I've gone first a couple of times. Yeah, you know, I, I think it depends on who you're asking about. Um, I think with the CIA versus the FBI, it might be a different story, to be honest with you. Um, like sure. we talked about earlier, like one of the hardest things about this is coming with one central narrative or one central conspiracy because everyone's almost fucking up in their own unique way. Mm. Um, you know, with the FBI, like. 
I, I think there, you know, there are some honest excuses that can be made. You know, I think certain people and I don't I'm not speaking for the whole FBI here. Trust me, I'm not letting a lot of these guys off the hook. Um, we have a lot of axes to grind. But um, I think that, you know, some of these people like did like I think you're Ken Williams and I think you're Steve Bongarts and, you know, folks like that were trying to like rate. I mean, who was it, Eric, that we talked about the other week that literally said, you know, as a warning, there someone's going to try to Zach Rice was going to try to crash a plane into the World Trade Center. Oh, um, um, was that Steve Bongard? No, it wasn't Steve Bongard. Was oh, it? Oh, it was, um, what was his name? Um, Harry uh, Samet. No, 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 no. It was uh, shoot. Um, Greg. Um, Jack Clonan. No, I, was it? What's his name? Is it Greg Jones? Greg Jones actually sounds right. Yeah, but like there was there were these explicit warnings coming from these people that were aware of the Phoenix memo and you know that had been like chasing Zacharias Masawi around. You know, they had this very real concern that these airplanes were going to be used as weapons. And you know, it's something that we had to hear for years after 9-11 that to this day like pisses me off every time the phrase comes up and we make fun of it a lot on the show, is this idea of intelligence intelligence failures and you know, failure of imagination is is right. the one that Rumsfeld used to love to trot out back in the day. But you know, this idea that like we could never possibly conceive of planes being hijacked. And it's like you have people in the FBI like assigned to like the Al Qaeda unit, like throwing these warnings out, being like, hey, they're gonna hijack planes. Hey, they're gonna crash planes into things. Like they they should have known because they had broken the plot up prior. Like they had stopped this from happening, like with Bojenka, and then you know, it was stopped again with the landmarks plot and like I mean, not millennium bombings were going to be more bombings, but like they had broken these kinds of plots up before. Like, it's not like any of this was new information or any kind of a surprise. Right. Um, as to the CIA, CIA is like a more difficult thing for us. And, you know, getting towards the end of this whole disconnecting the dots arc that we've been doing now for the better part of like a year, it's ultimately hard for me to say almost like where the malfeasance is still coming from. Like, I don't I still have a very hard time going back and forth between the idea that like they were protecting Al-Hazmi and Almadar, for example, because they thought they could flip these guys or that they thought these guys could serve as some kind of like asset that made them worth protecting from the FBI. And then there's plenty of the rest of me that just feels like this is classic, let it happen on purpose, Pearl Harbor shit, where like right. Tom Wilshire and Richard Blee and co were, were protecting these guys because they wanted something spectacular to happen in the United States. So everything else that followed could follow. Um, and I think that the frustrating thing there is that we can only speculate to a certain degree. Um, yeah. Like you can use the material available, but like even while we're concluding the story, like in the next episode that we're going to do, um, along with the last one that we did, it's almost a little bit of a black hole at the end because you can point the finger as much as you want at Richard Blee, but like the motive is where things get difficult almost because yeah. like either one would make sense. I'd be almost satisfied with either one, but like they each kind of have their own unique problems in a way. Like we've talked a lot about the idea of Al-Hazmi and Al-Madar being Saudi agents. And like, I have so many reservations and issues with that specifically that like that to me and like the whole idea of like the CIA and like this kind of triple quadruple agent sort of nonsense. Right. This all seems way too complicated, especially for guys that like weren't that smart and didn't speak English. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Especially that they didn't speak English. Yeah, I think that um, if you're going to try to break down and understand motivation, then you just sort of have to look at what happened. And we have the actual fact that the FBI knew that there were plans, uh, you know, at least five years in advance to use planes as weapons. And uh, after 9-11, the official narrative is that we never, we could have never thought that this was going to happen. Um, so you have 
either a systemic effort to block the sharing of that information, which is something that we see time and time again throughout um, uh, events surrounding 9-11. Um, you have this compartmentalization in all of these agencies that make it so it's possible to just stick somebody like um, Maggie Gillespie uh, on, you know, a wild goose chase to do in her own free time, that's going to almost guarantee that they don't find anything that they shouldn't find or, you know, are supposed or to Or make be sure finding. that Richard Blee's boy, Tom Wilshire, conveniently ends up hired at the uh, the FBI as right, the, uh, right. li liaison or job title that cannot seemingly be like, consistently identified by anybody doing these investigations. Right. Or um, even like uh, we've talked about, or we, we talked about on the episode that um, I still have to edit and put out. I'm sorry, Ben. Um, uh, uh, in which <laughs> uh, we talk about what happened when Nawafal Hazmi and Khalid Al-Bidar were eventually watch-listed at the end of August 2001. Robert Fuller. Robert Fuller, mm, who so was tough. an absolute green FBI agent that had like no business being the point man in this investigation, didn't even know how to like start the investigation. Didn't start the investigation until about five days after he was assigned to it. Um, like how how did, how is that possible with uh what Harry not running Samet the most basic credit checks, not running the most basic background checks, not and I mean like either because he was told not to, or what is very plausible to me, he just didn't really know how to do. Yeah. Um, because which that's is why he got the job in the first place. Probably. Which is yeah. which is what we've seen. I mean, we see it with Margaret Gillespie. She didn't know to use the um the uh the Hercules um database system to uh search through these cables. She was looking for she was looking through the wrong system for cables that Tom Wilshire already had um pertaining yep. to uh um, which is the most important the thing. Travel of we House and Madar. We, we, we bring this up every 10 minutes, like every time we, we do these fucking episodes, but like, and it can't be stated enough that in all of this, regardless of what the specific example is, Tom Wilshire knew all of this since January of 2000. And mm. like, it, it's so crazy making at times because like, no matter how much benefit of the doubt you want to give him, it's like, well, dog, you knew about this for a year and a half. Why didn't you tell anybody? I mean, and, if you're going to go in that route, Tom Wilshire yeah. probably knew in 1996 that the FBI <sighs> had information about the Bojinka plot because where was he at that point before he started at Alex Station? That's right. The FBI is a radical fundamentalist, mm -hmm. isn't it? <laughs> mm -hmm. So Thanks he would have known. <laughs> and let's, let, me, let me jump forward to uh, probably Please. one of our that my favorite topics of all and probably yours at the same time. And that is a phone call that was captured by the NSA in late December of 1999, in which they overheard a phone call between Khalad, which is Wally bin Atash, and Khalid al-Midar at the Yemen hub. Uh, they learned about this detailed meeting in uh, Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur. And the NSA basically tells the CIA and the FBI about this meeting in Malaysia in the hopes of them getting photographs collected by human intelligence that they would uh, conduct. And what happens? Well, the CIA, through the Malaysian authorities, capture the photographs of certain people at this meeting. And what do they do, Ben and Eric? Well, they didn't share that information with anybody. And not only that, uh, they also know that both men uh, had US visas. And the story mm -hmm. of how they captured the photographs of the visas is uh, one for debate. We can always, we can argue about that, but I'll fast forward to that. The information that the CIA had that they were coming to the United States and that they had us visas and that they were both Al Qaeda subjects, well known to the CIA and the NSA for many years that they were coming inside the United States. And what did they do? Ben and Eric, 
they didn't share the information with nobody at all. That's right. Not only that, but they subsequently say the, the, the biggest decision that comes out of that meeting is that, okay, we're going to keep following this Almadar and Al-Hazmi guy. Mm. Like, they both seem like they're up to no good. And then they immediately lose them when they go to Bangkok. Um, days later, I, I, we've checked this before, like, um, Kuala Lumpur to Bangkok is not a long flight. It's, it's four to six hours, I think, mm. maybe. Um, and when you go through and you try to pin down like the official CIA explanation for how they were able to lose these guys that they were supposed to fall to Bangkok, mm. the explanation always seems to come up like, fuck you for asking. That's why. Like, mm. well, like, and also you can, it's they such did... an unacceptable oversight that like, I mean, ahead, it's Art. not even an oversight because they, yeah. um, I mean, officially they lost them, but they didn't really lose them because they <laughs> knew ahead of time that I believe be Benatosh um, had called Bangkok and booked a hotel for the three yep, of them. Yep, they sure did. And uh, as soon as that happened, um, then Alex Station informed the Bangkok CIA station to collaborate with ba uh, Thai officials and um, watch list uh, the three gentlemen, uh, Benatosh, um, Al-Hazmi, and Al-Midar, uh, which Bangkok officials did. And then CIA Bangkok Station waited about three weeks to ever follow up with it, mm. even though they knew that they would be staying at this hotel because they monitored the reservations. Um, they monitored the phone call in which Benatosh made a hotel reservation. So they took, I think, something like two to three weeks to even follow up with Thai mm. officials. When they did, they heard, oh, yeah, actually, yep, we watchlisted them. We had this information. Here you go. And then it took them almost another month before they shared that information back to Alex Station. And then you get the issue of this cable coming to Alex Station um, in which George Tenet uh, perjured himself in saying that nobody read that cable in the March time frame. Um, we have the receipts. But Dick Clark stumbled it more than once. <laughs> Dick Clark has gone on record um, along with the CIA general inspector in uh, 2006 in the Zacharias Musawi uh, trial. It is public record that uh, 50 to 60 CIA agents read that cable when it came into Alex Station in March of 2000, uh, which uh, it, it got there two months late because um, the CIA made sure that it got there two months late. They, they purposefully dragged their feet. There's no other way of interpreting what happened there other than they purposefully dragged their feet. And so with now Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf al-Hazbi inside the United States, the CIA certainly, by law, cannot conduct operations inside the United States. They sure so, can't. <laughs> but conveniently, conveniently, the Saudis pick up from the CIA. And so they become the benefactors and the uh, facilitators and assisters of Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf al-Hazbi. Now, sure seen that way. Right. They, I mean, with the latest Operation Encore files that I've been yeah, reading, officially they did, uh, yeah. the, 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 the number of people that were involved is enormous. And yep. uh, there's, there's, now there's a direct connection between levels of the Saudi government and the Saudi officials helping Khalid al-Midar and Wapazmi. Right. So now, 1999, 2000 comes, you have other people coming to the, West, to the East Coast, and they were called the, the Hamburg South. Yeah. Uh, Mohammed Atta, Marwan al-Sheh, Ziyad and these are people who are coming from a mosque in Germany called Al-Quds, located in Hamburg, thus the Hamburg cell. Right. And these are the people that are allegedly selected by Osama bin Laden as being the pilots for this planes operation that was um, uh, purported by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed to bin Laden in 1999-2000, uh, uh, mm -hmm. uh, in which he wanted 10 planes, and they narrowed it down to four. That's if we're going by... Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's uh, words, take right. that with a grain of salt. Yeah, because so then you, you have... do have to consider uh, whether or not they were going to use um, 
commercial planes or um, uh, what do you call them? Um, crop dusters. Crop dusters. Yes, Thank yes, you. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Because Mohammed Atta does inquire about that. So now we have foreign intelligence rings, Ben and Eric. So the Saudis out west monitoring Al Midar and Al Hazmi in California. You have is Israeli. You have an art student ring, which is approximately 250, 300 people. Mm-hmm. And then you have this moving front companies. One, of course, everybody knows as Urban Moving Systems right. in Florida, New Jersey, New York, where the Hamburg cells member uh, lived uh, at certain periods between 99 and 2000. So you have the CIA, the NSA, the Israelis, the Saudis, all monitoring these members of what would be known as the planes operation. I'm sure the ben, Pakistanis had. I've been sure there were a few ISI guys in the mix too. They're long yeah, averages. Sure. But Ben, but Ben and Eric. <laughs> all the while under the auspices of the State Department and the FBI. Yeah. So now, I, w- I of course, I'm going to be daring with this question for the both of you. Is it a stretch to basically say that they didn't tell them because they wanted to turn them as informants? Or maybe, just maybe, they knew about this operation and that in order for this operation to be successful, they they couldn't tell the FBI and that they would take advantage after 9-11 to basically go to war with Iraq, Afghanistan, implement Patriot Act. Is yeah. that too much of a stretch to say? Um, well, let's look back at uh, what I had to say earlier about the structure of the role of DCI. Um, is there one person who uh, can cohesively... Uh, uh, bring together all of these different agencies um, and uh, uh, be the utmost authority to them. I don't think it's uh, too much of a stretch to say that, yes, that it was exactly the goal, especially when you consider um, Tenet's history himself. Uh, I don't think a lot of people read enough about George Tenet's history before he became CI, or DCI. rather. Um, before he became DCI, he had a very close relationship with George H.W. Bush. And um, it was a little bit contentious in some accountings of it that while he was um, DCI, or actually rather when he was um, on the NSC for Clinton, um, he was more loyal to HW than he was to Clinton. And that carried over as DCI. Um, And it really does seem like the one person who had the authority to take care of all of this, all of these interagency um, intelligence failures, uh, the one person who had the authority over everyone um, had the same foreign policy goals in mind that came about because 9-11 happened. <laughs> like, uh, I don't think it's a stretch, is my opinion, no. I and even without a smoking gun, I don't think it's a stretch to say that, like, regardless, um, you know, the people that had to be ready after 9-11 with, like you know, what came after 9-11, they were ready to go. You know, the the Patriot Act, which no one has, I think, to this day ever read, you know, they had that ready, ready to go within weeks. Um, You know, continuity of government was, you know, switched on that morning. And, you know, you had, you know, your secret, you know, underground bunker full of, you know, your all was your all Republican shadow cabinet that gets formed. Mm. Yeah, which is my favorite that there were Democrats upset about its existence, but only because they weren't included, not because they found it out was... from CNN, right? Yeah. yeah, not not because they weren't mad that it existed and that right. it was unconstitutional and that it was satanic. Uh, they were mad that they weren't included. <laughs> 
I mean, yeah, and it all goes back to uh, it. It all goes back to Dick Cheney too. Like, mm. like he was there at Contra the Cowboys. Contra I know. Cowboys. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like Cheney and Rumsfeld, um, they were there at the very beginnings of everything that got switched on on the morning of nine eleven. Um, it, it's very hard to look at all that and say uh, Bush didn't do nine eleven. Next season three is going to be cog. I am such a freak for continuity of government stuff. It's not even funny. Yeah, no. and, and this is exactly what we saw in the after effects of nine eleven. But right, it, it, you know, it, it this is something that really um, just makes my gears drive in overdrive regarding this period of nine eleven. And it just seems that all the warning flags were there, all the information was there. And according to even Thomas Drake, the former senior executive of the NSA, yep. he basically does say in later interviews, and there's one where it's a famous um, clip from Fora TV, where he basically says that one of the things about the NSA regarding all that metadata that they collected was that the NSA alone, had they shared that information, could have prevented 9-11 alone, just them alone. Yep. And it just makes you wonder the amount of information data that they had. Now, this is coming from even from people from Able Danger. I've interviewed Anthony Schaefer and Eric Kleinsmith, where they basically said that they collected so much metadata that they couldn't. Eric Kleinsmith basically told me once that he can only imagine what the NSA had, which was much bigger than Able Danger itself. Right, right. Can you imagine all the information of the phone calls that they were listening to regarding Bin Laden's satellite phone between 1992 to 98 when he stopped. It's inconceivable that they and wouldn't the have House figured something Yemen out. From 96 to 2001. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, and I'm one of the few people, but Paul Thompson is the only one of the ones and yourselves um, that bring this issue up. Wow, what did they listen to? What right. could they possibly? Because, you know, when you have Al Qaeda people on the phone, they're not talking about the Yankees and they're not talking about, you know, daily doldrums of MTV or something yeah, like that. So they're they're not talking, going these to are serious Disneyland. men. Talking yes. about operations. Yeah. And so, Ben, Eric, I mean, you have pre so much pre-intelligence that could have stopped 9-11, and 9-11 was allowed to happen. And this mm-hmm. leads into so much conspiracy. Like, right. I can understand why, you know, all they were in on it. Could it be right. explained such as that? Could it be easily explained as that? Or is there more nuance to it? I think there is definitely more nuance to it. Mm. Um, but that nuance doesn't... Um, I think that nuance doesn't dismiss uh, the uh, the malfeasance, I guess, like the malignant nature of the core of the matter. Um, yeah. That uh, despite everything, despite all the nuance, I guess, um, it's still deeply evil mm-hmm. what happened and what was allowed to happen and what was ignored for the sake of foreign policy goals, which at the end of the day is for what? For the the national security interests our national security interests are uh, are are like gdp like our, it's <laughs> like our national security interests are just how much money we can make our national security interests are keeping the war machine going at this point like yeah <laughs> um it's it is deeply evil so yes i i think there's definitely more nuance to it um it isn't just as easy as saying like yeah uh the project for the new american century the bush administration whatever you want to say that it is um did 9-11 yes there is a ton more nuance to that um and i think that's what we spent the better part of a year really like dissecting and what you do every episode of your show adam um but at the core of that nuance is deep fucking evil 
Would you agree with that, Ben? I mean, was that something? Yeah. And I would say too that, um, like I would say, and I think we've talked about this on our show too, that we as being, you know, normal you know, plebeians, like we are held to a, a different <laughs> legal standard than like the CIA is or the FBI is. Right. But like, right. you know, I think it was Mark Rossini you had on your show once who mentioned, you know, the idea of looking at 9-11, again, like a criminal investigation, like a series of murders and, and, and looking at it in that sense, not leaving some of the geopolitics aside and just starting with this factual basis. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this on the very first episode of the show, you know, for me, if you know that someone is going to kill somebody, if you know someone's going to shoot someone with a gun and you have, you know, a year to hide the gun from them or take the gun away or go to the cops and have them take the gun away and you don't do anything. And then one day that person gets shot, you know, you're not directly responsible. You know, Al Qaeda is more guilty than the CIA is necessarily. But, you know, at the end, it doesn't matter what the what the excuse is like, you still have that blood on your hands. And at the end of the day, no one lost their jobs. No one went to prison for any of this besides, you know, um, besides Kariaku, but that was its whole other <laughs> separate story. Right. But I mean, like, it, it sh- it's not good enough for me. And it's not good enough for the victims' families, ultimately. Like, that's exactly. why they're still fighting this out in court. Exactly. You know, if it, the, the kind of shit that the CIA has to answer for, they never had to. You know, Tenant and Kofor Black and company, like, went and lied their asses off in, in two congressional hearings. And Tom Wilshire didn't even have to show his face to anybody. And a lot of these people, you know, still work in the blob. Like, they end up getting promoted constantly because you know they're good employees yeah or Um, they got like spike bowman and literally got a cash bonus (laughs) like insane it's insane so you know what comes after 9-11 we have two congressional inquiries 9-11 commission and of course the joint house inquiry we have the fbi's pent bomb report Mm -hmm. um we had the cia's inspector general report which showed that there was uh, some malfeasance, but it wasn't totally their fault. Basically, all of these reports and congressional inquiries basically gave a very lethargic response and a lethargic report that basically I call them, especially for the 9-11 Commission, I don't call it an official report. I hate that term. I call it an incomplete one because there was so much information that they didn't put into the report mm-hmm. that basically, and one of them was able danger, by the way. Right. Um, but... Fast forward to all the years that are passing by and people are just outraged and 9-11 truth movement is outraged. They want answers. Meanwhile, flooding them with them is the fringe aspects of conspiracy yeah. theories that basically awash and blanket the actual conspiracies of 9-11. Now to the present day of 2022. And finally, we're getting a trickle uh, of information called Operation Encore. That is basically the follow-up, the FBI's follow-up to the pent bomb investigation of Saudi involvement to 9-11. And you would think that the media and other experts would jump on this latest revelations that are out there. And I've done a couple of videos on this, even a podcast in my previous podcast about it. Nothing. I mean, basically no attention is being paid to it. But it shows, and I said, you know, if you want to get into, you want to get your foot in the door, well, here it is. And basically, people are just slamming the door shut. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Ben and Eric, what, what would be your response to how can we get the public's attention back to 9-11 itself? I mean, I think focusing on justice for the victims' families is mm. is the most important way of bringing attention to the issue. Yeah. Um, and I don't even mean to say that in kind of a, uh, I feel like I, I, I'm almost hesitant to put it in that um, in that way because it might feel like I'm, you know, almost using 
the Cliche. leverage the, the the leverage of the victims' families to bring attention to something that I just want to like prove correctly. But I really do genuinely believe that uh, they deserve better than to be uh, you know mocked as uh, Alex Jones adjacent for uh, wanting more information to be um, released and wanting there to be answers to what happened to their loved ones. They deserve that. Who were, at they, the end of the day, murdered. Yeah. Um, and they, a lot they, of cases were not only murdered, but vaporized to the extent where, like, right. people had to bury empty coffins or, or, like, a handbag in, like, a coffin. And, like, if that was... We talked about this literally again on the first episode of our show, that if that was my one of either one of my parents, like, I would not be satisfied with the explanation that had been given over the last 20 years. Right. While, meanwhile, Saudi Arabia continues to be treated as... Well, not anymore. And, Adam, I think that might be worth mentioning, too, as we're getting towards the end of this. So, you know, I, I believe it was earlier this week now, the United States and the Biden administration has come out and said that they're officially going to take a step back and reevaluate the relationship with Saudi Arabia mm. um, in light of the OPEC plus... Um, Mm -hmm. production cuts that came out i believe that was last week now and um yeah i mean i think that that's the other interesting angle in this and that's because so many other things have happened that have kind of put 9 11 to, to bed in the public consciousness it feels like we were told yeah. to never forget but then trump got elected and then COVID happened and then world war three or four broke out depending again on who you want to ask and yeah at this point like it is such a there are so many more urgent things you know the economy is dying in real time at this point there's about four or five more wars that could be breaking out at any given moment but um, I mean, with Saudi Arabia back in the news again, I mean, maybe this is what finally gets us all to go green. Um, you know, <laughs> right. we get off oil because 20 years later, we finally point the truth out and be like, hey, these guys are mostly responsible for 9-11. Yeah. And I mean, even to like build off of that, um, you have the very prescient argument that the world is the way that it is because of the way that 9-11 was allowed to happen. Like we got here because of that. The state of emergency never is still in effect. I mean, it's been reauthorized by every president since W. And, it was and the it's same the same one from nine. It's the same playbook being, you know, played out in Eastern Europe right now. Yeah, it's the same. It's, Cyclone, the, yeah. it's the same playbook that led Eternal to 9-11. Occurrence, baby. Exactly. Um, so if people finally want to uh, grab a hold of history as it happens, then um, learning about what happened in the uh, failures before 9-11 um, is a great way of understanding a very confusing world now. Um, the difficulty therein is getting people to break out of their own bubbles so that they're actually interested in learning what they don't understand. Most people don't really, I mean, I think that's the same reason why so many people are attracted to fringe conspiracy theories about 9-11 is because it's hard fucking work to read all of this and uh, and actually do the thinking that allows you to comprehend these events, um, even in a surface way. It's difficult, it takes time. And uh, people don't want to do that. They have shitty jobs and shitty lives and they just want something that like, you know, uh, like gives them a little like dose of um, uh, uh, like, I don't know, it scratches some itch. It lets them feel like they understand something. Um, so they, you know, go to whatever you want to say, if it's um, uh, nanothermite or whatever, um, uh, no plane, what? You know, directed space, energy weapons yeah space beams whatever it is it, it is um like i do kind of hate that old adage of conspiracy theorists like are the way they are because they want um an easier way of understanding things other than the hard truth it's like like that's kind of bullshit but also it's not 100 wrong like i think that people pick extreme 
theories, conspiracy fringe theories, um, because it is a little bit of a simpler way. That's that's much simpler than having to learn a ton of Arab names and understand the structure of the CIA before 2005 and memorize a bunch of like agents' names and read a bunch of memos and sort through a cache of 5,000 pages of documents. Um, it is easier to just say, oh, well, there were no hijackers. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, Israel loaded up the towers with nanothermite and then just go about your day, uh, continuing to once think that a year, that's... spend four hours watching new Pearl Harbor. And you right. Know, so much yeah. Fun by the time yeah, you're done yeah. with that, I mean, who cares about any follow up? Yeah. But then you're just going to continue to dig yourself into a hole. And now you have to come up with a new conspiracy theory to understand what the fuck is going on in Ukraine. Um, but, uh, I, I do think if you want like some kind of, I, I don't know if it's peace of mind or it's just going to make you lose more sleep for me. I, I, I think I, I do get some kind of demented peace of mind from understanding the world that I live in. And I'm the way. same way. I'd rather yeah. at least know how the world works. Right. But, um, uh, it, it, uh, it is a way of analyzing history that, um, allows you to understand current events a little bit better and not feel like you're, um, just being played for a fool, I guess. Let me ask um, a final question for you both. I want to hear two answers from this, uh, Ben and Eric, if I can. Um, what do you want out of your podcast? What What is the future of your podcast? And what message do you want to bring to uh, people in the future regarding any future works or projects um, that you may have uh, or may not have in the works? Ben, you want to go first? Yeah, I mean, I think that the biggest thing we want to instill in people is the idea that everything comes back to American foreign policy, I would say, at the end of the day, um, at least to me, I think that's one of the biggest messages is that there's a concept, none of this happens in a vacuum, you know, the, the engine of history never stops turning. And so much of the problems, I would say, especially in the Middle East, are all conscious policy decisions that we make here back at home. And a a lot of ways we benefit from those and some of it we don't personally benefit from but it's all something that we can make a choice to and it's just, we can choose differently and it's very frustrating to be you know in the year 2022 and seeing the same playbook get applied to ukraine um i can't imagine how low rent the, the ukrainian 911 is going to be um oh, they're going to end up you know over hitting the white house by five miles and <laughs> but uh <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> but I, no. Honestly, though, don't get mad at me for that. Um, but honestly, though, like it is frustrating because, like, to to see it so clearly, you know, laid out, and you know, to go through this story and realize that you know it's our support for Israel, and it's you know having military bases all around the world, and you know waging this constant war where as soon as we're you know out of Afghanistan, we now have to be sending all of our tax money to go fight the Russians now in Ukraine, and then, and and uh, you know, I would say that if if anything, our our show is an anti-war show. I think I've been anti-war my entire life. And I think that, you know, if anything, it's just important to realize that, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. Right. I know at this point, you know, given between, you know, unitary executive theory and Citizens United, it's not like there's a whole lot we can go out and do necessarily. You can't vote your way out of a lot of this shit, unfortunately. No. But, um, you know, if, if one or two other people can kind of hear this and maybe think about our place in the world and, you know, how we act in this world a little bit differently, then it's time well spent and Eric's fun to hang out with. So yeah, yeah, I would, I would definitely uh, agree with everything that Ben said. And I think, yeah, for insofar as goals for the show, I mean, I don't really like have 
goals for the show. I'm not like concerned about necessarily the growth. There's always going to be another thread we can pull. There's not. I mean, <laughs> yeah, we have a master yeah. list somewhere like, with like we're... 20 different things we could do multiple episode arcs. But I mean, on, so. you know, like yes, I I do want people to listen to the show and and um, but I, it's not like I want an audience. Uh, I want people to learn and I want to learn myself and I learn myself best by trying to. Um, comprehend something to the point where I can explain it to somebody else cohesively. And uh, if if I can help other people learn and understand the world that they live in and understand the way that our government functions, um, then I, I, I feel better about, um, I guess, my place in the world uh but i like we're not doing this for money we don't we don't have a patreon we're not asking for anything we don't care about our twitter like well uh, do a patreon a, give us money and i'll do an oklahoma city bombing yeah yeah, yeah. If you, if that's you my give us, their passion project if but, you give um, us money we will strong arm adam into starting a <laughs> a, a retro mma show so that we pod can never talk die. about that that so yeah exactly that's ben's name for it it's pod never die uh <laughs> but we're not <laughs> we're not that. asking we're not asking for money you know we're not at we're not we're not trying to get a big audience we don't want a claim we just want to help people better understand what the fuck is going on around them what the what they see online every day what they read in the news every day if you read history if you understand what happened in these uh you know kind of pivotal events you can better understand what's going around every day and it helps you feel a little less insane and it helps me feel a little less insane to read about, um, which is maybe uh, a catch-22 in, you know... What's the old I, joke about Marxism-Leninism where the worst thing about it and the best thing about it is that you can see the future? Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. It's, <laughs> you can it's, see the future, but no one wants to hear it and finds you weird and off-putting when you talk about it. Right, right. Like, it, like it, is, it does seem like a catch-22 to, like, spend so much of my life, um, uh, or all of our lives, I guess... Uh, reading about something, as you said at the beginning of the show, Adam, so deeply depressing, but it does make you feel less insane in the flood of news that you're just inundated with every single fucking day when you just look anywhere. It's very easy to just feel so overwhelmed by uh, uh, everything that goes on and not understand what's going on. And like, what are you supposed to do? Like turn on CNN and get a better understanding? Fuck that. Uh, like. So if I can help anybody... You have anybody, to live in prison, you at least be able to see the contours of the bars. Yeah, you know? yeah. Right. If I can help anybody uh, just feel a little less insane or like feel like maybe they understand uh, the world that they're living in and why it is the way they the, the way that it is, rather, um, then I, I guess I feel better. And that's, that's my goal, at least. And it's not a huge audience, but um, when we first started doing this, I literally thought no one would ever listen to it in a million years. And the fact that there are people that do listen to it every week is so still so fucking cool to me that I know I, that's I know, why I yeah. do it. Like, honestly, the fact that anyone listens is enough reason to keep doing it. Right. Ben and Eric, the podcast is the podcast for the new American century. Guys, thank you very much for coming on today. This is a great oh. Thank, Thank you, so you Adam. Like I said, this has been us. a long con, but we <laughs> mission accomplished. <laughs>